Turn in your Bibles, if you will, again to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, this morning. <coughs> Matthew, chapter 3, we'll look at the first 12 verses. Several weeks ago, we started a study of the Gospel of Matthew, to which we return this morning. So far, we moved through the first two chapters, and it may have often sounded like Christmas again, for Matthew has been introducing Jesus to us in terms of his genealogy, uh, the predictions of his birth, his birth, the conditions of his early life, which eventually landed him growing up in the town of Nazareth, a pretty nondescript little town. But today we fast forward about 30 years, and Matthew begins to introduce us to the adult ministry of Jesus. Matthew begins chapter 3 with the simple words, in those days. That is, in the days of Jesus' life in Nazareth, which tells us nothing about when that was. Was that when he was 10 or 20? Or We don't know. Fortunately, Luke was much more precise. Here's how Luke introduces this. He writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ithuria and Trachonitus, and Lysanus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John out of Zechariah, John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. All that description about who ruled when and where is Luke's time stamp, telling us it's 30 years now from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. 30 years since Jesus was born that he begins his earthly ministry. And the first thing that happens is the ministry of the forerunner of Jesus, who we know as John the Baptist. Let me read it. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat in the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There we'll end our reading. As we see here, there was one great theme in John's ministry, and that's our theme this morning. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Now we're going to divide that into two parts, but that's basically our two points right there together. We'll take the second part first, and then we'll come back to the first part. Because you could say that, because the kingdom of God is near, repent. So that's kind of the order we're going to take it in. Our first point is this. The kingdom of God has appeared. 
The kingdom of God has appeared. John and Jesus proclaimed the same exact message. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. When we read that, it seems to say the, coming, the, the kingdom of God is going to come before long. But in reality, it literally says the kingdom of God has come near. I know you don't want to hear about Greek grammar, but this is a perfect tense, something a little different than what we have in English. It's completed action in the past that now has implications for the present and the future. In other words, the kingdom of God has come. And now, and in the future, we feel the implications of that. So from where we stand, we have to say, the kingdom of God has already appeared. I make a point of this because this was a crucial truth in my own life. I grew up in circles where everything about the kingdom was some future reality. Something that's going to happen someday when Jesus returns. And I believe that because that's the only thing I was ever taught. And then one summer I studied Matthew and the other, the other Gospels about the kingdom. And, and, and discovered that the kingdom has already appeared because the king appeared. That does not mean we've seen everything. We have not. But Christ's kingdom is a present reality for us, not just a future hope. Now that becomes clear when we look at what John preached. So let me go through some of the things that John preached concerning the kingdom. According to John's preaching, the kingdom means the coming of God's Messiah to comfort his people. This wasn't about John's preaching. It was all about Jesus coming, whose sandals John was not willing, worthy even to carry. So Matthew quotes what Isaiah promised about John in, uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Now we know chapter Isaiah 40, it begins, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. And when would that promised comfort uh, 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 appear? Well, it goes right on to say, uh, when a voice appears crying in the wilderness, proclaiming Messiah's coming. That's what John the Baptist was, a voice proclaiming the appearance of God's Messiah. So then Isaiah 40 goes on to describe. This would be the glory of the Lord appearing. Sounds like what we hear about the angel's announcement at Jesus' birth. This announcement would be, his, the announcement would be, Behold, your God. That sounds like the name of Jesus was given Emmanuel, God with us. And he would gather the lambs into his arms, bringing comfort. Yep, that's just the one who calls himself the good shepherd, who gives his life for sheep who leaves the 99 in search of the lost lamb. All that is exactly what the Gospels describe concerning Jesus' ministry. So that the kingdom John announced has already come, at least in part. That's what we know today. The kingdom of God has appeared in Jesus. Now the present reality of the kingdom is also seen in another way. In what John proclaims about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What John described clearly looked forward to the day of Pentecost. At Pentecost, many Old Testament prophecies, which John just kind of summarized quickly, were fulfilled. For example, uh, through the prophet Joel, God had said, I will pour out my spirit on all people, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. And through Ezekiel, the Lord said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is what John was proclaiming when he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This part of the coming of the kingdom already took place. It's history for us at Pentecost. On that day, God poured out his spirit on the church in a way never seen before. And since that time, everyone that God saves is baptized by the Holy Spirit, is joined by the Spirit to Christ, is filled with the Holy Spirit's presence and power. We don't wait for this to happen when Jesus comes. Jesus has come and his kingdom has already appeared, including the marvelous giving of his spirit to his church. One more thing about the kingdom that John preaches, but this one is not yet for us. That is, the coming of the kingdom means the coming of judgment. John has much to say about this. He uses several metaphors of judgment. He says it's a baptism with the fire of God's wrath sweeping across the earth. He says it's the cutting down of Israel's unfruitful family tree. He says it's the winnowing and burning after the final harvest of souls, the separation of the good grain from the chaff, and the burning of the chaff. Judgment is coming. Now John probably thought, as most all the prophets thought, as all the people of Jesus' day thought, as the apostles tended to think, John probably thought judgment is coming first, and then the blessing of the kingdom. But he underestimated God's grace, which would appear in Jesus. This is actually part of the mystery of the kingdom. That grace would appear before judgment. That God would redeem the nations before he unleashed destruction on those who were not redeemed. Still, John was not wrong concerning the judgment, though this great truth about the kingdom remains not yet for us. This is still kingdom truth. Folks, much of the evangelical church in our day is either sitting around waiting for the Lord to come and issue in his kingdom, or they're totally engaged in the political kingdoms of this world thinking somehow they would bring about the blessings of the, of the Messiah's reign through the political forces of the day. Exactly, by the way, what the Sadducees did in Jesus' day. But Christ's kingdom is different than the kingdoms of the world. And it is already a present reality, one more important and one more powerful than any of the kingdoms of the world and their influence and their power. And we are called to be busy about the Lord's kingdom business. Praying always, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God has appeared, for the king has come. Which brings us to the second truth, the first part of that theme. God requires radical repentance. God requires radical repentance. You know, some countries you drive down the road and all of a sudden, without any warning, the, the road just ends. And you think, wow, it'd be nice if they put up a sign or something. Oh, that's not true in this, this country. When, when we're driving down the road and we encounter a situation where something's going to happen up front and, and, and we're not going to be able to keep going the same way we're, we're told that, that we've been going, that we plan to go, uh, there, there's always direction about turning around. May I suggest that such, an, such admonitions are seldom subtle for us. 
First, we see warning signs. And we see police cars with lights flashing. And we see detour ahead signs. And we see all traffic must exit sign. And if we miss that, we see road ends in 500 feet sign. And stop, make a U-turn, do not proceed kinds of signs. And the officer walking up to our car to see why we haven't listened up to now. When it comes to traffic problems, we've learned how to communicate clearly. You have to turn around. Well, turn around would be a simple way of saying repent. And God, who demands serious repentance, also finds a way to communicate it clearly to us in our text. He did it by sending John the baptizer. John the baptizer. And his message, in light of the appearance of God's kingdom, the appearance of the king, his message was simply, turn around. God requires you to radically repent. Now, there are several ways this was communicated according to our text. So let me go through them. First, John's appearance itself suggested a radical response. I don't know any preachers like uh, John. He wore clothes made of camel hair, and he had this wonderful diet of locusts and wild honey. This man was a curious attraction. But John was not trying to be a sideshow. John dressed and lived in a way that openly disdained ordinary comforts. To make a point of the extraordinary announcement and the radical response that it demanded. In other words, what he called people to do was no more radical than what he was doing himself as he tried to communicate that God demands radical change, radical repentance. We see that also in John's criticism of the unrepentant. Calling for nothing less, he called for nothing less than a radical response. He dismantled their comfortable presuppositions. The leaders of Israel came out of curiosity to see what all the commotion was about, who this strange man in the desert was. But John didn't just try to satisfy their curiosity. He pointedly applied the need to repent to them too. They saw themselves as the reverend, revered uh, custodians of God's law, a position of great honor. John accused them of being like poisonous snakes in the grass, a threat to God's people akin to the, akin to the serpent in the garden. John went on to attack the root of their sense of safety. They were the descendants of Abraham and proud of it. They were the heirs of God's covenant blessings. But John was unimpressed by their claim. He says, you know, God could take these rocks here and make them children of Abraham if he wants to. In other words, no one is exempt from radical repentance. Not the children of Abraham. Not the distinguished leaders of God's people. No one. By the way, may may I suggest, if I might just meddle for a moment, we reform people are in danger of doing just what the Jewish leaders did. We believe in God's covenant. He includes our children in his promises. And we celebrate that. Indeed, many of us, myself included, are children of the covenant. We have inherited God's promises of grace as our birthright. So it's easy for us, when facing a call to repentance, to say as they did, 
Well, radical repentance doesn't really apply to me. I already have standing before God. No matter what I do, I'm a child of the covenant. And yes, we do have standing. But it is not a standing that negates the call to repentance. Repentance and faith are the basic building blocks of covenant life. Indeed, God promises his covenant people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that for those who refuse to repent and walk in covenant obedience, it will be worse for them on judgment day than for those who never heard a thing of Christ. Michael Green summarizes this powerfully. He says, religious observance and religious pedigree are not enough. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had that and to spare. Orthodoxy is not enough. To be Abraham's seed is not enough. If there is no heartfelt repentance, there will be no spiritual life for you in the kingdom of the Messiah. John doesn't quit there. He goes on to define repentance as actions, not feelings. These days we don't talk much about repentance, but if it ever comes up, we might repent. We would simply think that means saying, oh, I'm sorry. But the repentance John calls for is much more substantive. First, it involves confessing sin. We see that in verse 6. To confess means to say the same thing God says about our sin. But if we ever get around to admitting sin, we probably just call it a mistake or an oversight. In contrast, God calls it disobedience and defiance and rebellion, even idolatry as we, as we pursued something greater uh, uh, with more hope than we have in him. So when God calls us to radical repentance, he's calling us to come over to his side and adopt his perspective on sin and call it what he calls it. What would that kind of confession sound like? I think it might sound something like this. Lord, when I ignored your word and just did my own thing, it may have looked innocent to other people, but you and I know I was defying you. I was leading to a little personal insurrection. Or it might be, Lord, I confess that those harsh words toward my spouse were not meaningless. They flowed from a murderous heart that at that moment wanted only to hurt and destroy. That's how God sees it. Or confession might mean, Lord, in that moment of lustful desire, I bowed down to a false god. I engaged in idolatry. For I acted as if the things I lusted for could satisfy my heart which only you can do Lord such confession calling sin what it is is the beginning of radical repentance then as a symbolic act of repentance John called people to be baptized now now we're familiar with baptism we've seen baptisms all of our lives it's a sign of our union with Christ it's the entry point uh, into the faith But baptism was an innovation for John. Oh, there were many ceremonial washings of one kind or another in Judaism, but 
The only thing that even remotely, uh, was even remotely like baptism in John's day, and we're not even sure that it was that early, it could have been a bit later, was a rite required of Gentiles, pagans, who wanted to become Jewish. If that's where John got his practice of baptism, it was as if he were saying to these Jews, these children of Abraham, these people who prided themselves in their heritage, saying to them who came to him in the wilderness, you need to radically repent, for you are no better than an unclean pagan who needs to be converted. That's a radical call to repentance. But even all that is not the whole of repentance. Repentance is turning around to head in a different direction. Here we see it's not just about our feelings or about a ritual cleansing. Repentance is about our actions. Verse 8, speak, verse 8 speaks of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 10 says that only trees that bear good fruit will not be cut down. Fruit is the tangible evidence which shows whether repentance truly exists. We can speak words saying, I'm sorry. We can claim to feel great remorse. We can vow to turn over a new leaf. But no, no matter what we say, anyone can look at the fruit of our life and know very quickly for sure whether we've repented or not. Indeed, Jesus himself later said, by their fruit, you shall know them. God requires radical repentance that not only confesses sin, but turns around to walk in a different direction, producing a different kind of fruit. Now, I know you may say, I can't do that. I can't change myself. And you're right. Jesus said in John 14, where he was talking about bearing good fruit, Jesus said pointedly, without me, you can do nothing. You're right. You can't bring that about. Indeed, the book of Acts calls repentance a grace which God bestows on us. But folks, let me just say this. If God gives you the grace to see the error of your ways and to say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. That same God will give you the grace to turn around and begin take, to take steps in a different direction and to continue to follow him until the fruit of your life, your actions and your motives become noticeably different. That's the radical Repentance, God demands. When Jesus was about to be introduced to the world, God sent a forerunner named John, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. Then when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he proclaimed exactly the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. And today the scriptures proclaim the same exhortation to us. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. Or as I've tried to explain it, taking the second thing, first the kingdom of God has appeared for Jesus the king has come. Therefore, God requires of us radical, radical repentance. Amen.